and WSAU. Uh, many of us could have done without the snow this morning. Uh, slight dusting of snow, but it's not going to last. Temperatures up to 40 today. Uh, mostly sunny skies and temperatures in the 70s by the middle of this week, uh, which is also in some circles uh, known as Merle Kelch weather. Sunny in 70, right? I, I like sunny in 70. Yeah. It's just 80. It's too hot already. Yeah, 80, 80 yeah, is yeah. you know where we where we start to get problems, indeed. Merle, it's uh, good to have you back in studio here. Uh, it is. Yeah, what's, uh, what's been going on? What's What's been happening? How are the wife? How, how's the kids? Everybody? everybody well, it actually happens to be my oldest son's birthday today. So oh, happy, really? 31 uh, years old uh, son, and he'll know which one it is. I'm sure he's not listening to this because he's not awake yet, but oh, I mean, okay. we know how that goes. And, right. Uh, uh, my lovely bride is driving up from Florida right now. I'm guessing she's probably hitting the Wisconsin line. And I got you know text last night at 11 o'clock saying, "Is it going to be snow? Do I have to drive through snow?" Yeah, you're gonna be fine. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, as as long as you're uh, yeah, as long as you're keeping it between the lines, uh, you're good. But yeah, we we certainly got under delivered in this snow department uh, today. But I think that's uh, that's certainly okay. Uh, news that uh, also under delivered this week. You see what I did there? I like that. Uh, you're like going to be turned into one of these professional uh, radio personalities. <laughs> uh, jobs numbers coming out this week yeah, uh, yeah, impacting yeah. the economy. Uh, uh, lower than expected, but uh, Merle, from what I understand, uh, de- depending on who you talk to, this is either a very good thing or it's just okay. Well, you know, the, it's kind of interesting. And, and to answer your question, I'm going to spend a few minutes, as I normally do, because I have to come around to uh, answering that question. Mm-hmm. So... I was reading, of course, uh, one of my favorite economists is Brian Westbury from First Trust, and it'd be wonderful to actually get him to come up here and, and be on the show. It'd be wonderful because I wouldn't have to talk. He's just freaking brilliant, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So he's, he went through and he said, congratulations, and this is per his article from this past Monday. He said, congratulations if you stuck with the marketplace throughout the course of this quarter. If you had a portfolio that was diversified or inside of the S&P 500, you're probably up some 7%. Congratulations for sticking in there. And part of the conversation, he said that our models, and they do everything based upon models that they've developed and worked on and tweaked over the course of many years, to come up with some sort of a projection of where they think the economy and the marketplace is going to go. And in there, he said our models did not predict this, that we're going to have this, but then uh, essentially going on and saying, you know, this is the first time after a post-pandemic that we shut an economy off, and so maybe our models aren't working right too, et cetera, et cetera. And and so from that, um, we... We, we look at this and we try to have some sort of an idea or a belief of what's going on with the economy. And the fact of the matter is we simply still really don't know because what's happening is that the economy has never happened before. And so, you know, I put a lot of thought to stuff, folks. It's kind of weird. You know, some people, you know, watch, play video games or watch mm-hmm. TV. Um, I sit there and think about stuff. And maybe that just means that I need to see some, seek some professional help. I'm not really sure. But, you know, so I look at this. And, and not that I'm trying to explain something, but I'm trying to explain why things aren't working as they classically have done from an economic standpoint. I mean, usually you you know, follow a macroeconomic model through a growth and an inflationary and back to a recessionary and back to a growth model and what's going to happen with interest rates and the Federal Reserve along the way. And all that's just really different right now. So I look at it this way, and, and I, I ran this by my friends last night at about 930, and uh, they were having some cocktails. I'm not sure if it really worked, but they said they understood, so maybe this will help. Okay. So if we draw a mean line from left to right, you can slope it up a little bit because our economy generally grows. Mm -hmm. And if you call that the mean, um, you know, when we shut the economy off, our economy obviously dipped considerably below the mean. We shut the economy off. And so we dipped below the mean. And so then as we turn stuff back on again, coming up in, in, you know, 2000 or so, 
we not only sloped up dramatically coming back up to the mean line, but we we excelled way past it. The number of jobs we had, the amount of business that went out there caused a huge inflationary effect, along with the cash and beyond that conversation. And we, we took way off and way up. And, and so part of that is is we had a lot of companies that hired a lot of people, especially inside of the gig economy. Your, you know, your face. I think Facebook in, increased their um, uh, their uh, number of employees by ninety one percent. You know, um, Amazon the same thing. Um, and now this stuff is all all turned and it's now starting to settle back down. And so if we look at it, we dramatically went past that mean line. We're coming back again. And so coming back to that mean. Would that mean we're going to have a recession? The answer is, yeah, that's how it's going to get measured because we're going to have a contraction of the economy. It's going to actually come down. Um, um, but does that mean we're bad? And so the answer is, I don't know the answer to that, but it does explain then why we continue to have um, profit moving forward. We continue to have low unemployment. We continue to keep having job reports coming uh, that are much positive. Nothing anybody would have expected over the course of the last call it, last year. But it does explain that. It's, you know, we're not dipping down below the mean. We're just coming back to it. And that might have a lot to explain with why, for example, First Trust economic models, which have been, by the way, bleeding brilliant for years and years and years, doesn't quite make sense. And why is it that we're supposed to have a recession and the world's falling apart and we're still all working? You know, and usually the jobs are like the, the you know, the, the mm-hmm. last thing to go, but they fall apart. And by every measure of the past, they, they would have been falling apart dramatically by now. So now we're getting layoffs from Facebook and Amazon and are you know, getting rid of ten or 20,000 positions. But they added so many when we we're down in the trough below the mean from an economic standpoint to uh, get themselves geared up for all the stuff we were doing while we we're sitting at home. So it's interesting to, to find how this might go. Um, um, but we come to the jobs number then. So the jobs number is much less than what they thought. I think we, we added some uh, 236,000 mm-hmm. jobs. Which is more than expected. I think the expectation was two ninety four. I think it was. I'm I'm going from memory on here. We're looking to say, well, is this bad? Well, no. I think this is just kind of settling down where we're supposed to be. You know, the whole belief is, and people get so excited when we see this news. It's oh, it's worse than expected. The economy's coming down. The Federal Reserve is going to magically and uh, and and next month they're going to drop interest rates. No, no, no. It's not going to happen. So the Federal Reserve is waiting until that inflation number comes down. That's what they're supposed to do. Um, but so many people see the bad news and they think, oh, great, it's finally going to happen. The Federal Reserve is going to stop. Well, no, they're not. Um, so <laughs> hang in there. But it kind of comes back and say, yeah, the, the, the jobs were less than what they were supposed to, but the unemployment is still low. It did not tick up. So we look at this, and it just simply means that the increase of the interest rates that the Federal Reserve has done is working. It's starting to kick in. And it usually takes some time, as we've talk, discussed over the course of the last number of weeks quite a bit, um, it takes some time for that stuff to settle into the economy. It's going to continue throughout the course of this year. And almost all measures that we see still say we're going to have a recession. But again, is that a recession from going from this peak down to this, this mean we're supposed to be? Or is it going to dip below that? And nobody has that answer or when it's going to happen. But we can see the economy slowing, albeit small. It's slowing down. I mean, that's what we need to tame the, uh, uh, tame the inflation, which is what we all need to have happen. Right. And, and, you know, in listening to uh, to this um, and making sense. By the way, I'm sorry, I used a lot of big words. I I mean, uh... you certainly did. But I I, I think I've found a way to to somewhat distill this down here. Uh, You know, there's there's a novelty T-shirt out there that uh, it says, don't tell me to act my age because I've never been this old before. I don't know how to act my age. I've never been, you know, you're, you're. 
your son entering his 30s now. He doesn't know what that's all about. I can tell you a few things about it. Just uh, make sure that you watch your heart health being one of them. Uh, but so are we at a, at this point right now in the economy where we, we really don't know what's normal because we haven't, you know, we haven't been this old before, so to speak. And, and, and I appreciate your analogy, but the answer is, well, I don't know if it's how old, how old we know, but we've never done this. Well, maybe it is. Uh, we just haven't been here before. Uh, uh, the smoke, um, the smoke coming from his ears right now. I think I may have just. Oh yeah, the gasket uh, there. I'm just trying to put it to your analogy. Yeah. You know, usually, if you drive around a circle racetrack, you know what's coming around the next corner. Right. Um, um, well, now we're in a straight line. I mean, we don't have any turns. We haven't we haven't went around a circle. This is a new a new venture. We we're I I don't want us to be speeding down a dead end track, uh, which is kind of. Well, it's great until the end. Exactly. Um, um, but but it's it's a different whole different thing, and there's a lot of notations being taken in case uh, the world sees us having to do this again at some point in time. Is how do we do it then? How can we do it again in the future? But it's going to be interesting to uh, to see what happens. But I think that the the best medicine we can have is to continue to be in, invested um, versus saying let's take everything out and put it in cash, which by the way was, is not what we recommended anyway. Um, but the, the thing to, to do is to um, stay full force because the economy is still moving forward. Um, we're still making shoes. We're still producing milk. We're still making bread. We still got to you know, buy a new chair when it breaks, whatever the case may be. We still have to do all that sort of stuff. And things aren't falling apart. We don't have the soup kitchens. I'm not saying that things aren't worse for some people. They certainly are. But at large, it's not. Um, and, and so we have to continue on um, um, uh because we're not dipping below that mean. We're not going to a recessionary thing. We're just slowing down, in my opinion, back to a mean that we we missed because of the volatility of shutting off economy and then overheating on the way back up again. In fact, um, Brian Westbury actually used the example, and I thought it was kind of humorous. Um, it's one I've used to my wife's for some time. You can't just heat the air in a room. You have to heat everything inside of the room, too. So it takes a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And he said what we've done with the economy is we essentially stuck a 10,000-square-foot furnace into a 2,000-foot house, and we cranked it on high, and then we shut the furnace off, expecting it's going to cool down right away. Well, the air's got to cool, but it's got to cool down all the stuff within it, too. And, and I think that's what it is, is we're cooling it back down to a, a, a normalcy for our 2,000-foot house versus when it was at 10. He is Merle Kelch. We're making financial sense here on AM. And I'm done now. Play commercials the rest of the time. That's it. That's all my here on AM five fifty <laughs> FM ninety nine nine WSAU. This one's certainly going in the uh, best of folder for the next time that uh, well, that, that you're going to be out because this will kill you know half the show for that, uh, and that means less work for me. Uh, we'll we'll be uh, of course our 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 banter our fodder is always just filler for your phone calls. The phone lines are open at seven one five. 845-2155. If you've got a question for Merle, uh, feel free to give us a call. We'll get to your phone calls later uh, next here on WSAU. 823 on this Saturday morning. Again, we are on our way to a daytime high near about 49. Uh, some sun peeking out right now, but expect mostly cloudy skies throughout. I'm WSAU News Director Mike Leishner. He is Merle Kelch, and of course, we are making financial sense. Merle back in the studio today. We finally have the band back together after several several weeks and uh, yeah. of course that means merle's had a lot of time as we mentioned earlier to sit and think occasionally read it usually scares a lot of people yeah it, it, it's it is very scary he occasionally reads as well i read a ton of stuff but you know mm -hmm. here's something here's one of my thoughts that has nothing to do with the investment world okay isn't humanity just kind of a chubby mermaid all right, all right I'll, so I'll, I'll see where this is going <laughs> 
That's, that's all I got. That was some of the things I thought of. <laughs> 715-845-2155 is the number to call. I think well, I think you've uh you've sparked a uh a deep thought in somebody with that because as soon as you uh you said that, somebody called in. So caller, go ahead and uh and save us from Merle's ridiculousness. You're on making financial well, sense with Merle Kelch. Good morning. Great morning. to be with you guys. Merle, love your show. Got a got a quick question for you. Thank you. What's your name? Uh, as, oh Jack. This is Jack. Morning, and, Jack. Uh, Thank you. As as an investor who's nearing retirement, you know I've got uh, what a lot of people have, you know, some uh, some IRAs, uh, uh, some some retirement accounts, and so forth. But I'm just wondering, as part of a wider investment portfolio, something I've never bought into is gold, and I'm just wondering what you think of that. As again, as part of an investment portfolio, you know, the, the general consensus when you're doing gold is you should never have more than ten percent of your portfolio. And this isn't some sort of a thing that's tattooed on investment professionals' arms. It's it's one of those things that's just kind of a general consensus. And I've even said some 5%. And so, Jack, I've said on the, on the program a number of times is I'm not a big fan of a person having the actual bullion if you're going to use it as an investment. Now, if you have the actual bullion um, and you're going to pass it on to heirs later on, that's a different animal because, you know, that's now you can hold on to it. And the reason for that is because of the premium that you buy the actual bullion for and the discount that you sell it for. So, for example, the spot price or the price per ounce that you see you know, published on, online, and I'm just going to make it easy and say 2000 I know it's not 2000 but bear with me a second. So if the spot price you're seeing on TV or on the Internet for gold is $2,000, when you go to buy the bullion from a dealer or a, a coin and jewelry store, whomever might have that bullion, you're going to end up paying some twenty one hundred to I'm sorry twenty two hundred to uh, twenty four hundred for that because ten to a twenty percent premium is normal. So so on the next day if you decide well geez uh, maybe I don't need this gold I'm just going to go ahead and sell it back when you go to sell it back even your stock price uh, spot price might still be two thousand um, uh, dollars they might only give you eighteen hundred or sixteen hundred for it and so that's what the difficulty uh-huh. is in, in buying it and then and also the reason you see so many advertisements advertisements uh-huh. for Buy gold. And by the way, if you buy gold from somebody or from a firm that has somebody speaking English, they're smarter. That's just the way the rule works. It's okay. <laughs> it seems like they all do. They use somebody who's English speaking because that's smarter, apparently. Um, so, so in here, Jack, if gold is the direction you want to go, and I'm not saying it's bad, um, but I had conversations with people last night. They said, well, we heard gold is going to go to $4,000 an ounce by the end of the year. I'm like, no, probably not. If it does, fantastic, but probably not. Um, the way to do it is to buy it through some sort of an ETF or something of that nature because in that, um, you can buy it and you're not paying that big discount. Remember my example of $2,000? Right. You're not paying that – I'm sorry, you're not ba- buying it at that huge premium. And if you need to resell it again, you can sell it the next day and you're not selling it at a huge discount. It's all going to be right. based on what that spot price is versus you know plus or minus your expenses for buying or selling. Mm-hmm. So that's the way right. that I would do it if you're making it for some sort of a short-term hedge. Uh, on whatever may or may not happen inside of the marketplace, that's how I would buy it. So general consensus, uh-huh. never more than 10% of a portfolio. Um, uh, you know, I would even look at probably less if I was recommending it to a client. Now, mm-hmm. something that I've always said is that if you are going to buy the actual bullion, I do would tell people to examine looking at rare coins from a bona fide place, by the way, um, right. but rare gold coins, because not only do you get the gold price, but you get the intrinsic value from the collectibles. They tend to do 
better over a long period of time if we're doing that versus the bullion. All right. Thanks. That's very helpful. appreciate it. You're very welcome, Jack. Thanks. Good question. Absolutely. Thanks for the call. Yeah, you, uh, you kind of brought up a, a, a couple of good points in there because the first thing I'm thinking of is, again, the ads that you hear mm-hmm. saying uh, invest in the gold, invest in the silver. Don't uh, you know? take your money out of the market and buy all of these metals yeah. right now. So what you're saying is, okay, uh, when you hear those ads, remember that they're trying to sell you something. Yet they yeah, want to make money off of it. So you can listen, but take it maybe with a grain of salt. And if they're selling the actual bullion, they're not bound by the same rules that you would expect uh, as a financial professional would be, you know, with securities licensing and all that sort of stuff. They don't have to buy in by those rules because they're selling bullion. So they're not like somebody who is, is, is uh, uh, securities license is saying, what about a stock or what about a mutual fund, um, which, you know, even this program um, all goes through compliance and make sure we're not saying something that's not true and, if we say something that's not true, it's different than BS, by the way, folks. There's a difference in that. Right. You know, <laughs> right. I, I can say the manatee joke because, you know, I'm not in saying we got to buy manatee funds. Right. Which, by the way, I don't even know if they exist. <laughs> but, um, but, but uh, so gold, if you're selling bullying, you don't have to play by those rules because it's not a securities registered thing. Um, you're just selling bullion, like gold coins. Mm-hmm. Whole different animal. Yeah, so I guess, and no different from you know baseball cards or any sort of uh, collectibles, Precisely. which you, yeah, yeah. you might have heard this week. There was a few uh, Babe Ruth era collectibles that sold for millions. If you were happened to be lucky enough to have held on to something like that for a while, but of course, uh, again, you're you're playing by a different set of rules because those aren't regulated by any sort of uh, yeah. government. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we're speaking of coins. Um, and I, I caught the article a couple of times in probably about a month or so ago, and it just popped in my head when we said that. Um, if you get Wisconsin quarters, folks, save them. It's whenever you get a Wisconsin quarter, save them. Um, most of the quarters are worth exactly 25 cents. Of course. But there's some that were out there that sold for 64000 bucks because some of the Wisconsin quarters, this new version that we just came out with, um, are struck funny. They were double struck or struck funny. It makes them enormously collectible. And they're going up for huge money. And the article I read was 64 grand. And so what my recommendation is, if you see one from Wisconsin, put it in a drawer. Just save it. You don't know if you have the right one or wrong one. But um, if you don't collect any of them, you'll never know. But uh, <laughs> exactly. it makes sense to uh, to get that. Exactly. And, and again, that's a, that's a lot more than 25 cents. cents. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. We are at uh, 8.30 here on AM 550, FM 99.9 WSAU. As always, uh, the phone lines are open at 715-845-2155. One more thing I wanted to run by you uh, quick before we hit the the news break here. Uh, One thing I saw yesterday on the news, uh, because believe it or not, as news director, I occasionally watch the news as well. I consider it bringing my work home with me, but I also like to be uh, informed as well. Mortgage rates actually dipping right now, despite the fact that the feds have, of course, been had the interest rates on a on a steady upward trend. Is there anything to read into that, uh, that interest rates uh, are going down slightly uh, here in recent weeks? Really supply and demand. Excuse me. Um, uh, Usually, you know, really supply and demand comes in. So the, the mortgages have slowed down a little bit. And so banks, of course, want to lend out some money and, uh, and so they'll just drop the interest rate a little bit to entice you to come use their bank versus XYZ Bank across the street. So it's kind of nice. Um, competition. Huh. Weird. Weird. Who knew? Yeah. Just and uh, contrary contrary to the disbelief and probably dismay to many, we still are a capitalistic society. <laughs> 
Yeah, and just as long as you didn't take out that loan through uh, Silicon Valley Bank or anything like that, <laughs> yeah, right? No kidding. Yeah. Um, so I always I had a conversation. Matter of fact, um, several weeks ago when Silicon Valley Bank went down, you we were asking me some questions about it. I said, I really want to talk to my friend who's a banker, mm-hmm. and this is what he does. Um, and I said, well, why would a bank do that? He goes, greed. I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> and so, you know, we're having conversations in, in, in the way. Um, uh, he had said that most banks have bonds that are underwater. It's just that um, most banks don't put all their money inside of one place because they want to have some loans. And so thereby, I think, as we start getting those mortgage rates dipping because banks want to give loans out. Um, uh, loans are much easier in a portfolio than long-term bonds in a rising interest rate environment, which is just moronic that they did that. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, these banks put it all in there, and I said, "Well, why?" He goes, "Well, greed, you know." So, so, so again, kind of a basic, uh, a basic principle of having mm-hmm. a diversified portfolio. You've got loans where if you lend the money to somebody with a high credit score, you know you're going to be getting that income coming in, you know, once a month, maybe and even it's more by a hard asset. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, that that you see, that's this is where a guy like Merle Kelch comes in real handy, able to distill stuff down into terms that you can understand. Well, it's terms that I have to understand. I can't understand these big words. You know. <laughs> 715-845-2155 <clears throat> is the number to call. We'll be back with more Making Financial Sense next. But first, here's your news on WSAU. It is 838 on this uh, Saturday morning here on AM 550 FM 99.9 WSAU as we are making financial sense with Merle Kelch. And uh, Merle, as always, we encourage everybody to uh, everybody listening to call in. If we've got uh, we say something that sparks your interest and you want to know more, go ahead and give us a call at 715-845-2155. In the meantime, we just uh, talk occasional nonsense and occasionally things that uh, do make sense. But uh, Merle, I believe that some or of the things stuff, I find interesting. Yeah, those things that you find interesting. As yeah. we head on over to the phone lines right now, uh, somebody somebody wants to ask a question of Merle. Good morning. Who are we talking to? Good morning. This is Bill. Morning, Bill. Could you could you address uh, or give us some information on like I bonds and where you can actually get them? Sure. Um, I-bonds um, are just nothing but an inflation-based bond. So we're familiar with, like, um, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve bonds that you have. And, geez, my brain just went completely blank. Um, if we're buying the, you know, the three-month bonds and, and that whole bit, the I, I'm sorry, the I-series of the bonds, where did my brain go? It just disappeared, Bill. I'm sorry. Um, so you go to uh, treasurydirect.gov would be the website. And that's the federal website we can buy them. So um, I-bonds, of course, have an inflationary component for them. I haven't looked at the ones recently, but um, the ones last year, I think going up in October, they were giving you, um, I think it was almost 9% for a six-month rate. So when you buy them, um, the maximum is 10000 um, You can buy them, <clears throat> and they're actually a, a 10-year bond. Um, they want you to hold them for five. You have to hold them for one, and the interest rate is reset every six months. Okay? Okay. And so Is there any... It- any downside to them? Um, well, there actually has been. I don't think you can see it for a long period of time. But So so how the, the function of the actual interest rates go is there's a base rate set up based upon whatever the prevailing interest rates would be. And there was a time when the interest rates were, you know, the near zero mark, like we all were familiar with. Um, and you added to that an inflationary component. The inflationary component was essentially nothing. So your cost uh, or the amount that you received was actually minus for a little while. Um, so you actually made no money inside of the I-bonds, and nobody touched them for the 10-foot pole. And now all of a sudden they become uh, very uh, good because of not only is the base 
line interest rate going up because of the, the rise of interest in the Federal Reserve. Plus, you still get that inflationary component on top, and the interest rates look really nice. But we always have to remember it's for every six months, and then it resets again for whatever the next one is. So as inflation comes down, you're going to see the interest rate and those bonds are going to drop. Now, if you take the money out over that um, uh, five-year period of time, there's a little bit of a discount or a price you have to have to, to break it. Um, you don't receive the full price until 10 years, and you have to have it for 12 no matter what. But at this point in time where interest rates are, as well as where the inflationary component is, um, I think holding it for that one year, you're certainly going to make some good money. Now, CD rates have gotten pretty good. So you almost look at it and say, do I want to lock it up for a year with I-bonds, given where CD rates are going? And that's, of course, a discussion you, you just want to do a little bit of research and work on. Do you... It- the, 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 any interest, any interest that's paid is figured in when you b- purchase the bond, or do they, is it at the very end that you receive it then, or how does that actually break down? Um, good question. I think you receive it at the end. So when you sell okay. it, okay, um, I don't know. If it's, I don't think it's a monthly dividend distribution. And I don't think it's a discount. I have okay. not personally okay. bought an I bond. Other than work, um, I bonds are typically now purchased through brokerage accounts and, and brokerage stuff. And so from that, we haven't done the work. We simply refer them to the website. Okay. Now what, I might have to go buy one just so I know how they function. <laughs> what was the website again, please? Direct Treasury Direct. Treasury Treasury Direct. Dot gov. Good. Hey, I appreciate your time and your information. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Do appreciate it. You bet. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Seven one five eight four five two one five five is the uh, the number to call. So I guess the question I have from all of that, uh, what would be the uh, the difference then from a bond like that and, and and a traditional bond is it that these are designed to mature over a short time and you know your traditional hh or e series bonds or something that's uh, designed to be uh decades out um <clears throat> well but first of all my best svb really wish they bought a lot of i bonds just <laughs> i mean just saying that for the okay up there. Um, so the difference is is that your 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 e's and your g's and that kind of stuff the bonds you're getting your h's are all based upon the whatever the prevailing interest rate is so if they're paying the six uh, percent, you're going to get six percent for a certain duration of whatever the bonds you have and so forth. Um, and all a little bit different. It, it used to be that if you bought a six percent um, treasury bond um, or like a double E, uh, you bought a six percent. It was paid six percent indefinitely going out, even past the maturity if you held it. And that changed in the Clinton administration. He said, eh, no, no, no. After the maturity, you're getting whatever the market rates were. And so then people said, well, geez. This isn't as much fun as it used to be, especially <laughs> right. when interest rates were so low. So the inflationary factor um, is based upon inflation and that's what you're getting extra rates. So it's a hedge against inflation. And that, of course, was brought back every time we had some sort of an inflationary pressure. These bonds would become really, really uh, uh, um, popular um, as well as uh, uh, that they are right now. I mean, they're doing a pretty good job. And so the interest is simply derived from a different place than you have with the double E's. Okay. So that's that what adds that inflationary piece to the puzzle. Gotcha. 715-845-2155 is the number to call, Merle. Uh, I know you had another uh, economic uh, commentary that you had looked at recently regarding uh, I do. And regarding this, things. And this pops up from a, a secondary. So this past week, folks, from uh, Brian Westbury and his team from First Trust, they came up with a second article uh, that popped out, uh, in fact, on Thursday. And it's odd because you usually don't get two in one week unless it's something that's relatively of importance. And so bringing this up, it, it puts a whole bunch of thoughts into my head. We're not have to think again, by the way. I have to do a lot Uh-oh. more thinking. So in that thinking then, um, 
they came through with what the Federal Reserve used to do between banks and what Federal Reserves do now, and they're calling it the scarce reserves model and the now current abundant reserves model. You got this? Are you taking notes, Mike? I am, yes. All of you out there. Okay, so if I were a member of the uh, Federal Reserve System, which you have to be if you're a commercial bank, um, and I put uh, and I have a, a $100 million in reserves, which, by the way, that'd be enormously small, and I'm just using this for easy math. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be re- required to take 10% of that $100 million or $10 million that I'd have to deposit inside of the Federal Reserve System. And I did not receive any interest on that money. It just had to be deposited inside of the Federal Reserve System so that you made sure that you had reserves for lending, whichever the case may be. And so at the end of the day, then, also, your books would all have to balance it. If I didn't have enough money inside of the Federal Reserves, I'd have to go borrow money from somebody else in what's called overnight or commercial paper or something like that. I'd have to borrow money overnight to make sure my books balance versus my deposits at the Federal Reserve and what I have inside of my books. Um, uh, Well, after Lehman Brothers and that whole bit in 2009, the Federal Reserve System says, well, maybe we can do this differently. And so what they did then is they switched to what they call now an abundant reserves model. And so that if your bank uh, needs to put in, you still have to put the 10% in, but now the Federal Reserve is going to pay you interest rates, uh, pay you interest on that versus no interest as before. So the Federal Reserve then takes that money and purchases bonds for it. So it's buying then bonds from other banks, this kind of stuff, and putting them inside the Fed balance sheet. So if there's any abundance of interest rates, it gets paid to the, um, uh, the Federal Treasury, by the way. So old model, Treasury got a little bit of money each year. New model, the Federal Treasury got a whole bunch of money this year, and they liked that model better. Except the problem was is that um, now banks aren't really lending as much loans because they'd rather just do the bonds because they're making more money if they just give the money to the Federal Reserves, which, by the way, from this article, is now at some 4.9% banks are getting money on that bank. Well, that means now that banks aren't giving out loans like they used to. Um, their portfolios aren't diversified, and could this be causing a problem inside of the model like an SVB bank? Um, is it causing an issue from the mm-hmm. bond marketplace with the interest rate volatility? And so all these questions start popping in the middle of there, and it makes a guy like me go, huh, pretty interesting. And most other people go, what? But nonetheless, it's a big change of how the Federal Reserve does business. A lot of people are saying, see, look, it works. Well, now with the rising inflationary environment, maybe we're looking at going, Maybe it doesn't work so well because the Federal Reserve now is sitting on a trillion dollar loss in that bond portfolio they bought, just like all the other banking system. But it's the Federal Reserve. But still, Mm -hmm. the question has to come is, where's it going to get paid for? Right. Exactly. I can can kind of follow where you're going with this because, yeah, in the event that you don't have the diversification in there and now all of a sudden you have to take all of these losses – And then it comes back to people, well, like you and I, that have a checking and savings account. Eventually, this could trickle down to the point where we suddenly say, wait a minute, where did all my money go? Well, I think the money's going to be there. I don't have any issue with that, but I think the the loss are going to be paid for by you and I as taxpayers. In the old scarce reserves model, if they bought the bonds, the bonds would still be sitting there as a loss inside of the portfolio. But we're not paying interest on top of that loss. We're not paying interest on those assets Mm -hmm. that went down in value. So now not only did the value of the bonds go down like everybody else's did, um, but they're also paying out interest to the banks yet on money, even though they have a huge loss on the other side. And so how's this math working? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they actually did some inquiries to the Federal Reserve, and as of the time they, they published the article, they hadn't had any responses back yet. But it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I don't think our Federal Reserve system is broke, but it'd be nice to know how these things are going to get paid and how this stuff is going to shake out. Again, mm-hmm. It's only about 15 years old, so it's relatively new 
um, compared to the Federal Reserve System coming out in 1911. Going back to what we started the show with, we've never been this old before. <laughs> yeah. We've we never been know. on this path. Yeah, yeah, we don't know. We don't know how to act. 715-845-2155 uh, is the number to call. And, you know, one thing uh, just before we before we hit uh, Chris Conley with this day, as we had talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I, when Silicon Valley Bank first collapsed that Friday and, you know, we came, you came in and, you know, all of a sudden the plan for the show was blown to smithereens in a matter of hours after noon on Friday. Uh, you mentioned uh, something interesting with the local banks. Obviously, there's no real reason to be worried here because uh, the banking system around Wausau, around Wisconsin is different than operates differently than Silicon Valley Bank did. Oh, certainly so. Um, you know, when, when a bank takes in money. You know, obviously, we as individuals are insured up to two hundred fifty million, two hundred fifty million, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, not million thousand. Um, and anything we put over that, if we put into the bank, um, it's not insured any longer. We should always be cognizant of that. But the bank has, you know, with these excess reserves, they can do what they want to do with that money. I mean, obviously, they can do anything. But traditionally, the banks would be investing inside of different things that they might rent, such as real estate. Uh, they invest inside of loans for new loans that are secured that are secured by the properties themselves are pretty safe. And the, the recent trend is that the com- banks have been uh, investing inside of long-term bonds because they paid a higher interest rate. Well, those long-term in- uh, bonds uh, in a rising interest rate environment were going to get crushed, and they absolutely did. And so those banks that just didn't do it right or diversify themselves, they shot themselves right in the foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it wouldn't surprise me to see some more bank consolidation coming along to help some of those banks out. And I guarantee our local banks had some of those loans, but those bonds, um, but not as many as with SVB, which was almost 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And you got local money circulating in the economy. That's always uh, a good thing with always loans a better and, thing. and things like that. Uh, one, one, one more phone call here quick before we hit to this day. Good, uh, good morning. You're on Making Financial Sense with Merle Kelch. Who are we talking to? Good morning. This is Linda. I enjoy listening to you on iHeartRadio, even though I had to move out of Wisconsin to be closer to family. Well, thank so I you, appreciate Linda. your advice. Um, okay, my situation is I inherited some stocks from a relative, well over 100 stocks in a portfolio. Okay. Uh, I'm a buy and hold person. I don't like to be trading. I'd like to know how to simplify my uh, these stocks into something more manageable. I really don't need it for income because I've invested wisely on myself. Mm-hmm. Mostly I'd like to pass this on to my children. Okay. Which, which state are you in? I am in Minnesota. Okay. And uh, where did the person live that passed away? It was my father-in-law. He lived in Illinois. Okay. So one of the first things, if you haven't done it, is is get a cost basis on the day he died on these stocks. Okay? Which means on the okay. day he died, how much were these stocks worth? I do have that information. Okay, yes. beautiful. So from that then, um, you know, so, so let me tell you what I would do as a financial professional if somebody came in like yours. So we'd have the conversation, as you just simply said, I want to have this money go on to my kids. And the reason I say that is we see a lot of times we'll have um, a portfolio that mom and dad had, which is entirely different than when mom and dad passed away to what the kids have. And the difference is because of the generational differences. You know, mom and dad might have their portfolio, like you said, maybe more for income, as where the kids want to have more growth. And so there's two different things. So that might be one of those things, Linda, where you look at this and say, okay, now, by the way, aside from estate conversations on estate planning for wills, trusts, that type of stuff, we might want to look at the portfolio and say, okay, this is going to be for the kids. Do we make it for the kids now? Which means you make it growth-oriented per se. 
um, or do I want to have it income-oriented in case I want to have a couple of bucks along the way? So that discussion has to happen. The next part is, is I would go through stock by stock with a client and say, which one of these is going to be good and fit what we want to have for a model? And so is this a good stock or a bad stock? How's the management of this one? How's the profit? Do they have too much debt? Not enough debt. You got to go through stock by stock. And now this is going to sound pretty heavy. And if you have a, a, a pen with you, um, you yeah. want to do some sort of a, a beta weighted average of that stock portfolio. Okay. And that's B-E-T-A, a beta weighted average. So you take this mess of all these stocks they have, and you can look up online all over the place on what their three- or five-year beta you can choose. Um, I think the five-year is probably a better measure. You do the beta-weighted averaging. So the reason for this is this. Um, the standard and pores of the S&P 500 has a beta of one. That's our measurement. That's our baseline, just like when you go get your heart done. So if the, the portfolio acts like the S&P 500, I'm sorry, that stock acts like the S&P 500 versus up and down, it'll be said to have a beta of one. If it has 80% less, I'm sorry, 20% less volatility than the S&P 500, its beta is 0.8, 20% less than one. Obviously, if it's more volatile than the S&P 500, it has a beta of, let's say, 20% more volatility, well, its beta is going to be 1.2. Now, that said, if you do a beta-weighted average of the whole portfolio, you now know what the risk is of all those stocks that you have. So why do we say that? Well, um, you know, Linda, if you're looking at the portfolio and saying, well, um, I want this, you know, to be a nice growth portfolio, but it's total beta weighted average is 0.6. Well, that portfolio is pretty conservative. Okay. Likewise, right. if you say I want it to be a little more conservative, but it's beta weight is 1.3. Well, now it's got a lot of zip to it where you don't need to. And when you have that many stocks, you have to do that type of a measure to make sure you know what it is. Okay. So okay. from that, you just design the portfolio to how you need. Maybe you sell XYZ and buy a little bit more of ABC and you get that portfolio balanced so it's ready to go for uh, the kids. I see. Now, okay. the reason you need to have know that cost basis is because some of them you can look at it and say, well, um, my uh, uh, it's the father-in-law, wasn't it, you said? Uh, my father-in-law loved XYZ Company, but it's had a big loss. Let's sell that one now so we can offset those losses because we're also going to sell a little of HIJ, and that one's out of gain. So you can match up those profits and losses so you're not getting killed in the taxes as you're readjusting your portfolio. Oh, boy, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it, it is a lot of work. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of people don't do that because they get the stocks and they said, well, it was good enough for Dad. I'm just going to leave it, and they just leave it like that. But, it, it you know, you're asking a great question here, Linda, which is, um, what do we want to do with this money? If you're saying we don't need it for us, we want it to go to the kids, well, then you just build a portfolio that will just simply stand the time, but you have to have some measurements of it today because otherwise you don't know where you're going. One of the biggest risks a portfolio, um, whether it's stocks or mutual funds that a person has, is the risk itself, and they usually don't address that. So good luck to that, uh, Linda. Um, I appreciate your call. Thanks for listening on our heart radio. You're the first person that told us that's, hap that's happening. Okay. Yeah, it's a great device. Thank you very much, Merle. Thank you much. Cheers. Yeah, yeah indeed. Thanks for listening. And uh, you brought up a, a great point that I want to get to here uh, before we before we close out the show. Uh, you mentioned uh, those numbers and those metrics. You're actually speaking my language there. As a baseball fan, a guy that knows what an ERA plus is, a guy that knows what a ballpark adjusted ERA is, You're so you're talking about a portfolio there. So somebody like me, you know, mid thirties guy whose retirement, you know, occasionally the joke is, man, am I ever going to get to this? 
your portfolio for somebody like me would want to have that beta weighted average of above one because you want, you've got room to play with and you've got room for a little more growth mm-hmm. and you can take and, a lot. And, and you're and saying you, that not only your personal opinions, but you're younger. Yes, yeah. indeed. Because you can take a loss because it's not going to hurt you in the near term. You know, this money that I put away into the 401k is not money for tomorrow or the day after that. It is money for decades from now. Mm -hmm. As you get older, you want to take that number down to one or below because a loss is going to hurt you in the near term. Mm -hmm. You you hit it right on the head, and that's the biggest thing. And so if you're looking inside of a 401k with mutual funds, which is what's inside of your 401ks, um, actually they're usually technically little trust accounts, but we'll save that for you know, Alan to talk about how that goes. Right. Um, but in there, that's the reason as when you're younger, you'll might take on more risk and use some of the more aggressive portfolios and those all have higher beta. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the interesting thing is, is that um, I think we'll see coming up in the future, we'll have beta adjusted portfolios, um, which would be highly successful in my opinion, as far as being able to track that number. I did a paper years and years ago. And I'm trying to watch the time to make sure I don't go over here, but I did a paper years and years and years ago that talked about the biggest risk in a portfolio was the growth itself, and it really is. You know, if you're if you're 40 to 45 and you invested in your portfolio, the mid caps and small caps took off, and your beta went from let's say 0.9 to 1.2. Well, if you're in your 40s, it doesn't matter. If you're in your 70s, it does. And there's usually not an exit strategy for most people in their portfolio to be able to adjust for that risk. And and if and if they say, well, geez, you've gone up too high. Well, how do we know? And most people don't track that stuff. I'm one of those weirdos that does. Um, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons we have some survivability at, you know, in 30 years in this business. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And again, if uh, somebody wants to know more about that metric, um, how do they get a hold of you? We will be in Wausau. Hopefully we don't have any more snow on Monday. No kidding. Right. <laughs> well, well, Monday morning, stop in and kick the tires, have a cup of coffee. Kim makes a great cup. Uh, Mary will be there on Monday. So we've got the paint at church. She makes some incredible coffee. Um, I think my toenails have actually curled from Mary's Coffee. Uh, really? On Monday mornings, yeah. Yeah. Stop in and say hello and hi, 3rd Avenue and Bridge Street in Wassa. Um, give us a call locally, 715-849-3600. Or outside of the Wassa area at 866-355-5100. Um, or find us online at kelchinsociates.com. He is Merle Kelch. We have been making financial sense here on AM550, FM 99.9 WSAU. Stay tuned later today. We do have Milwaukee Brewers baseball. Pre-game coverage will be coming up about 5.40 with first pitch at 6.10 today. Milwaukee playing St. Louis in a Central Division showdown coming off a 4-0 win yesterday, and we'll have the Brewers on tomorrow afternoon as well. Regular programming uh, coming up for the rest of the weekend here on WSAU, and of course that means your polka shows over the next couple of hours and some replays of uh, Mark Lee, Van Camp, and Robbins as well. So again, join us for the rest of the day here on AM550, FM 99.9 WSAU.